Okay, I think we'll make a start on our final session for this conference. Um, there may be some people here who, um, who haven't been part of the conference, so I'll, who, have, who have joined us for this last open session, so I'll tell you about the conference in a moment. But first of all, um, my name's Sam Furphy, and I'm a research fellow in the National Centre of Biography, and um, although I'm currently skiving off editing duties for a research project, I have also been a research editor for the Australian Dictionary of Biography. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri peoples, and to pay respects to their elders past and present. So um, this conference um, has been about uh, dictionaries of national biography and other, other similar projects, and uh, we've covered lots of, lots of um, ground. We've asked questions about uh, what, a, what is the purpose of such a dictionary? Um, how do we select who goes in such dictionaries? The, the issues of revision and privacy and copyright and Wikipedia, that elephant in the room. Um, and there was one question, however, that did come up a bit yesterday and which we're going to pursue further now, and that is that issue of what to do with transnational lives or global lives. Um, and uh, is there a place for a, a, a dictionary project which looks beyond the nation, um, hence the title of um, this final session. Um, it's going to be a, a slightly slightly informal session, an in-conversation type session, and we're, we're, we're fortunate to have two wonderful speakers. Um, first of all, um, and for those of you who are Australian, Barry Jones probably needs no introduction, but for our international visitors, I think you can learn something of Barry Jones when you, when you discover that he's the only Australian ever to have been a um, elected a fellow to all four um, learned academies, um, technological science and engineering, humanities, science and social sciences. He's also um, a, a fellow of the College of Educators and a companion of the Order of Australia, which despite a recent blip is the highest gong you can get. Um, and I, when you think of Barry, actually, it made me wonder whether or not there is a collective noun for post-nominals, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, Barry has been a school teacher, a broadcaster, a quiz champion, a campaigner against the death penalty. Um, I was reminded by Christine, um, probably the nation's greatest autograph collector. He's also served in the Legislative Assembly of the Victorian Parliament and for about, for about two decades in the Federal Parliament, um, during which time he was Minister for Science under the Hawke government. He's written several books, one of which we're, he'll be discussing today. Um, but perhaps his other, other most um, best-known book is Sleepers Awake, Technology and the, Fu the Future of Work, published in 1982, um, since translated into Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Swedish and Braille, um, I, among others, I presume. So throughout, throughout this remarkable career, Barry has been working on his Dictionary of World Biography, and I was actually um, surprised to learn that that, the, that Barry began working on this at roughly the, the same time that Anne Moyle began working on the ADB. Um, it's, had a very it's had a very long gestation, and um, that is an interesting story in itself. Um, and uh, so we're going to hear from Barry first about the, the process of writing a dictionary of world biography. We're then going to hear from our next speaker, who I'll introduce, Professor Sir David Canadine, who, of course, the, the, those who have been at the conference have heard from already yesterday. He's a um, currently Dodge Professor of History at Princeton, 
visiting professor at Oxford, where he's general editor of the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. Like Barry, he has a good collection of post-nominals. Um, he's published widely in modern history, um, works such as The Rise and Fall of the British Aristocracy, or Ornamentalism, how, how the British Saw Their Empire, and several biographies. Um, so the structure of our session, our last session in the conference this afternoon, is that we'll hear first from Barry for about 10 minutes, and then we'll hear from David about um, plans that, um, that OUP have for um, a, a, a dictionary of global biography, if you like. Um, and then um, we've got the radio mics on because um, Barry and David will engage in a conversation for a little while and then we'll invite questions um, from, the, from the audience. So without further ado, I'd like to hand over to Barry Jones. Well, Sam and uh, David and, and friends, uh, let me just uh, go back very quickly over the history of the uh, uh, Dictionary of World Biography, because one of the factors that induced me to begin writing it was that I was conscious that back in the 1950s, uh, which is when the gestation began, which was probably around 1952, 1953, I was very conscious that there were only two major works which really uh, were readily accessible and portable, I mean, relatively portable in, in that they're in a single volume, that dealt with, uh, inter, uh, with biographical notes internationally and that really emphasised linkages, or I didn't think they emphasised linkages enough, but I wanted there to be linkages. There was Chambers's, which, um, uh, but Chambers's was flawed in a number of ways in that it had a tremendous, I think almost obsessive preoccupation with, with uh, uh, the United Kingdom, as they used to call it, uh, with, partic with particular emphasis, with particular emphasis on Scotland. Uh, there, there was barely a second or third rate uh, Scottish uh, author, and there are many first rate, of course, but who wasn't there in some depth. But it was pretty, I thought, pretty weak on the United States and particularly weak on Asia, on South America uh, and, and on Africa. So that I thought the balance was really quite wrong. The, the, uh, the Webster's put out, uh, I thought, quite a useful uh, uh, dictionary of biography but it was not analytical in the sense it was like a, simply like a reference tool like perhaps who's who, which set out offices held and so on, but didn't, didn't have a context and didn't have any kind of um, interconnection. And my hope, which had been a dream, had been a book of comparatively modest size, which emphasised linkages and which was broader, which had a different perspective than a perspective that was either, well, somewhat preoccupied with the United States in the case of Webster, totally preoccupied with Great Britain in the case of, uh, in the case of Chambers's. So I started writing away furiously, started writing off to uh, Penguins, uh, and strangely received at first uh, quite a sympathetic response to say, well, they'd like to see my work. No doubt they thought it would peter out, but 
Anyway, finally, when I got to uh, England, I'd been working on the thing for some years. I happened to meet, I had an appointment to meet somebody um, from uh, Penguin, a fellow called Charles Clark, not to be confused with the Conservative uh, uh, Member of Parliament. But uh, uh, Charles Clark uh, was very interesting, very sympathetic. And then he said, well, look, let me have a look at a sample entry. And he looked at some of the pages that I had. And he became preoccupied with the entry that I had on Jung, on Carl Gustav Jung. And he, it was obviously something that he knew about. And I think I must have sort of, uh, uh, well, obviously, it was good enough, because he then became quite excited. And it was more, I would think, on the basis of his reaction to this um, uh, entry that I'd written on, on Jung. That was the thing that said, look, I think we'd definitely be interested in getting the book, and we'll sign a contract, and we'll give him an advance. And that all looked terrific. Then time went by, and clearly, I think they had second thoughts. How could this unknown uh, Antipodean possibly uh, have all the range of, of knowledge that he claimed to have so that he could write confidently about music, write confidently about literature, uh, and the like? And uh, so the result was that they then said, well, they'd had a bit of a rethink. And what they were going to do was to break the, sub break the material up and send the material off to specialist editors in each discipline so that, the, obviously, the works on the composers would be sent off to somebody who was a music specialist, literature to a literary specialist, and the like. Well, that all sounded pretty good, but the problem was that... Um, over the years, you found that somehow whole sections of material simply disappeared. And, uh, and uh, the result is that when the first proofs came out, uh, you found that somehow uh, a whole collection of major composers just weren't there. For example, Bach uh, in the letter B, mostly in the letter B and in the letter H. <laughs> Bach, Bartok, Beethoven... Berio, Berlioz, Bernstein, Bizet, Bliss, Bloch, Boulez, Brahms, Britton, Bruckner, Busoni, Buxtehude, Bird, were all missing from the letter B. And you think, well, they're quite, they're reasonably, they're reasonably well known one way or another. And um, it would look a bit odd if they're not there. And in the letter H, you see, uh, they found that people like, uh, well, like Handel, Haydn, Hindemith, Hummel, and Humpernick were all, were all missing. So clearly something had gone seriously wrong. So then I remember going down and spending some time with uh, the uh, people that they had at... Uh, they, they had a funny little oubliette down in, in Hoban where the reference books area was. And they had a new... Um, uh, they had a new editor-in-chief called Sir John Summerscale, not Summerson, but Summerscale, who, would, who had two great passions. One was for the Edwardian theatre and the other was for lawn tennis. And he, what had happened was I found that the length of the entries had changed very dramatically so that my entry, for example, on Lennon had been cut uh, almost to, to extinction. And the entry on Suzanne Longlong, who was a famous tennis player of the 1920s, had expanded, you see, so it was really of equal length. And uh, 
so we started then arguing about how, how, how names were choose, how people would decide what to go in, what names should go in or not. And I mean, I, to some extent, used, in, these are the days before Google, before Wikipedia, I used a thing called the Wilson Biographical Index, which was really more than anything else to confirm my hunches, I would say, as anything else. I had a sort of a, an instinct, you might say, about who should go in and what sort of length, what sort of seriousness there should be um, uh, in, in the entry. Uh, but often I would then go to the go to the H.W. Wilson Biographical Index, and if you saw that in a given space of time, there was a tremendous emphasis on the great length of the, of the entries on Lenin, we'll say, and that Susan Longlong either wasn't there at all, or if there, there might have been just the casual reference, you got some sort of idea about what the relative size should be. Anyway, they'd never heard of, the, of, the, uh, of this uh, index, and I remember at one stage, uh, uh, that I said to, I said, well, well, how do you choose names? And, and, and Summerscale said, we ask chaps. <laughs> and uh, at that point, there was somebody over there, I mean, I, I think of him now as, as being called Wotherspoon. That's probably just an embellishment, but I, but um, because it adds to the P.G. Woodhouse flavor, but it's really like it. Now, I remember, he said, well, he said, I'll give you an example. And he, Call, he said, what is old fruit? Come, come over. <laughs> and he said, if you're writing a biographical uh, dictionary, international, with some slight emphasis on the English-speaking world, would you or would you not include the South African writer Stuart Clote? And uh, so I remember this character sort of blew his cheeks out and, and sort of <laughs> inhaled and blew his cheeks out. And he said, I think rather in. There you are, said Summerscale, we asked chaps. <laughs> and that's the way in which they made their, well, the way in which, which they made their decision. Anyway, years went, went by and nothing seemed to happen. And then out of the blue, the proof started coming. I thought, this is absolutely wonderful. What I've always yearned for, that the, that the proofs would come. But when I looked at the proofs, I found to my horror that among the names that were missing, were Bach, Beethoven, <laughs> Berio, Berlioz, Handel, Haydn. In fact, for some reason, nothing had happened. And uh, there was a complete failure to follow up exactly my kind of complaints. Anyway, I wrote a letter of protest. And uh, when they, uh, they, they responded to the protest, and they said, we, we, think, we think that... Um, we think that... Uh, uh, your idea of what should be in the dictionary of ours are, are irreconcilable, and uh, because they're irreconcilable, we think we ought to abandon the project. And I said, well, look, just let me make it clear. Uh, I, I understand what I'm trying to do. Are you really saying... I said, just quote what I said. I said, I wrote back... At, I said, can you provide some specific examples of this, these irreconcilable differences? If your problem is that I insist Bach, Beethoven, Confucius, Handel, Haydn, Heine, Hemingway, Herodotus, Homer and Hugo should be in, while you insist that they must be excluded, then this is an irreconcilable difference. But if that's the case, then say so. At least that would clarify the matter. But is that what you're saying? 
silence. Then I got a cheque and they said, look, in lieu of damages, and quite a generous cheque, uh, we're, we're paying it off. They were going through a bit of a crisis period uh, in, uh, over there in the uh, uh, in, in head office. They never really quite got their heads around reference books. Anyway, the book was then published by Macmillan, but uh, and, and the story is too long to tell, but the, the book was then published by, taken up by Macmillan, but again in a flawed, in a somewhat flawed form. And I remember uh, um, uh, the book was reviewed in the uh, Times Literary Supplement quite favourably by Sir William Haley, who'd been the Director General of the BBC, and I probably broke precedent by sending a letter of protest to the uh, Times Literary Supplement complaining about the good review that I'd received <laughs> because I thought that the book was so seriously was so seriously flawed. So the result was that in Australia, Macmillan Australia uh, were very supportive of me and said they simply wouldn't distribute the book um, in Australia uh, and that they insisted that there had to be uh, a really a, a, a proper corrected edition. But essentially, and I've already spoken far too long, and uh, I, like you, I'm much more eager to hear David Kennedy than I am to hear me. I've heard me before. Um, but uh, that essentially, the emphasis that I put on the book was always this idea of connectivity, of what the linkages were. I mean, you get a good example, for example, a good example in the uh, entry, say, on Shakespeare. If you want to think of what the influences on Shakespeare were, the particular sources that material comes from. It's all there, indicated by an asterisk to in, so that you've got further reading. And uh, so that the, or if you're looking at the impact of Homer on, say, a whole, yes, I know you're gesturing desperately there, <laughs> but um, uh, if you want to see the influence of Homer from his own time, but on through other writers, on through to the time of James Joyce and Kazantzakis and even later writers. There it, all, there it all is. So the linkages of the thing, and it's the... So the result is that my... I'd say that my expertise is very broad, but also inevitably shallow in some areas. And there are some areas that I uh, indicate I've got absolutely no knowledge uh, of at all, uh, I'd say pop culture, sport, and uh, 14th century Islamic ceramics. <laughs> and uh, so the, these are areas that are not well represented in the book. Thank, thank you, Barry, and I'll just um, hand over straight away to David. Barry, I'm not sure I can help you on 14th century Islamic ceramics either, but doubtless there's someone here who maybe will be able to. Um, I was very intrigued to hear that Penguin, who are my publishers, um, didn't behave, didn't treat you as well as in recent times I ought to say they've treated me, but uh, it's an extraordinary story about how this dictionary ever came to be, and uh, indeed if uh, my remarks are more than usually incoherent and superficial this afternoon, the excuse is that I was so enthralled in dipping into Barry's dictionary this morning that I quite lost uh, track of time and so didn't get round to preparing my own remarks as soon as I should have done. So the blame is entirely yours, but the achievement is yours as well. <laughs> 
I want to talk a bit about something which I hope will twin up with what Barry said. Um, it's about a dictionary of global biography not yet written, which may indeed have a gestation period even longer than Barry's, or may not actually ever appear at all. Um, and this is that Oxford University Press, which of course publishes the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, is pondering, and they're doing the pondering, I'm not, this isn't my scheme that I'm about to describe, they are pondering whether they ought to be thinking about going for global biographies as well as the national biographies, which of course they publish in the case of Britain and in the case of the United States. And the starting point for this is that there are, of course, a whole variety of dictionaries of national biography, especially associated with the Anglophone world, rather like national portrait galleries, too. They're very much an Anglophone thing. Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, and, of course, the ODNB itself. There's a variety of European dictionaries of national biography, uh, the Netherlands, Germany, Austria, Switzerland, and Italy. There's the African Dictionary of National Biography in several volumes edited by Skip Gates. Uh, there's a Chinese Dictionary of National Biography. Um, but there are not well-developed dictionaries of national biography in Latin America, in Russia, in South Asia, or the Middle East. Um, and what OUP are interested in is pondering whether they shouldn't be trying to think about what the challenges and opportunities, above all the opportunities, might be for engaging with this very uneven coverage of uh, areas of the world in terms of national biographies, but also of thinking how then they can trade up or trade down, depending on where they actually start this project, in terms of some sort of dictionary of global biography as well. And these are issues that have been discussed by OUP. Um, there has been a discussion among historians with a broad range of interest in Oxford. Um, and maybe it'll come to something, or maybe it won't. Um, and either way, well, if it does come to something, I hope more quickly than Barry's dictionary did. But anyway, we'll see how it goes. But this is what they have in mind. And I'd be intrigued, in particular, to get Barry's response, since he is a single-handed practitioner of global biography, and there can't be many people of whom that can be true. And I'd also be interested to get the response of you, the audience, as well. OUP are thinking about doing this in three ways. There are three different levels of this proposal. The first one is that what they want to do is a dictionary of a thousand global lives. Not 8,000, which is what Barry's got, but a thousand. And that these should be specially commissioned entries of between two and 5,000 words. And that they should relate to the following set of themes. Political power, religion and ideology, culture, iconic significance, hidden influence, inventors, global travelers, warriors, global economic figures, legal and illegal, and then something called representative global lives. And the idea is that those would be the categories of life that ought to be included. And the idea would be that the lives would be short, uh, they wouldn't be the very long sort of entries that certainly the ODNB goes in for, and that they wouldn't be full accounts of their lives, they would be stressing their global significance. This doesn't mean they necessarily have to travel, it's not difficult to write a global life of Shakespeare in terms of his influence, or indeed a life of Mohammed or Jesus Christ, and they didn't get out all that much. So it would be perfectly possible to write global lives of figures who didn't necessarily have to travel very far, although some of them undoubtedly would have done. So that's one idea, uh, to commission uh, a thousand global lives, which would probably be published online, but not, I think, in hard copy. The second scheme, 
which uh, addresses the problem in another way, is to look at those parts of the world where dictionaries of national biography don't exist or aren't well developed. That's to say, Latin America, Russia, South Asia, and the Middle East. And the idea there is that a whole infrastructure should be established by OUP to create dictionaries of national biography in those areas, or maybe dictionaries of regional biography, and that, it must be said, uh, isn't fully clear uh, or sorted or worked out. But the, the hope would be that in Latin America, certainly in South Asia and the Middle East, uh, a whole new set of dictionaries of national biography would be created where none exist at the moment. And then the third bit of this idea or scheme or proposed scheme, and it's the one I suspect which has the greatest likelihood of making some progress, is to try to link up uh, in terms of IT um, some of the biographies that have already, the dictionaries of biography that are already in being and that are already up and online, so that it might be possible to compare entries on similar lives which have been lived in other parts of the world, um, or just to have access to this much greater degree of biographical information, which wouldn't be absolutely global, but it would cover a larger part of the globe than any of these individual biographies do. And that's what OUP are thinking about um, at the moment, these three different layers and levels of what might be some attempt at engaging at the global level with biography uh, as distinct from just at, dare I say, just at um, the national level, though we know on the basis of many of the things we've talked about over the last day and a half that it's not, of course, as simple or straightforward as that. Now, there are clearly uh, a huge set of problems about this, which probably explain why it won't um, get anywhere. And maybe your responses will be so incredulous and disapproving that that will be a further reason why it won't get anywhere, but I would be interested to hear. If we take the thousand global lives, the history of the world in a thousand biographies, as it's been called by somebody, there is, of course, the issue of how do we select them, who will write them, who will edit these lives, what would the balance be, in fact, between those different categories? Are those the right categories? What would the geographical balance be? Some of the problems uh, in the sense that Barry has already talked about in his own biography. And it's perfectly possible to imagine an awful lot of trouble over that set of issues if that scheme goes forward. The problems with the second lot, that's to say the national or regional dictionaries of Latin America or the Middle East or South Asia, for example, well, there might be accusations of neo-colonialism. What's OUP got to do with setting up how uh, the, the biographical dictionaries of these countries or regions should be written? Surely it's for the people who live there to do that. Um, we've certainly been warned that some of the figures, for example, in, if there was to be a South Asian dictionary of biography, are hugely controversial to a far greater extent than figures in uh, most of the biographical dictionaries with which we are connected. And then, of course, there is the issue that there are already um, some national biographical dictionaries for Africa and for China and for Europe. So how would all these things tie together uh, at all? Is this really workable? And for the third lot, the, the IT link-ups, can that be done? Is it possible? Um, and is it the case that each of these biographical dictionaries that it might be hoped could be linked up are, as it were, uh, sufficiently similar in their remit, in their style, in the length of the entries, and so on? Um, so that are they, as it were, sufficiently equivalent uh, or commensurate for it to be appropriate to link them up? Uh, 
Uh, and that's, I think, a set of issues which also would need to be uh, engaged with as well. So there are problems, I think, intellectual, political, probably technological, and above all, financial. One of the things that we've talked about a great deal uh, yesterday and today is the fact that dictionaries of biography need a lot of resources. And the amount of resources that would be required to bring off any or all three of these ways of thinking about dictionaries of global biography are very considerable. And although OUP's resources are very considerable, like many publishing houses, it's not as prosperous as it was. And whether the resources would be available uh, isn't clear. There's also, the elephant is back in the room again, the issue of Wikipedia. Why do we need to do this if Wikipedia's already done quite a lot of it anyway? There's also, I suppose, the issue of will the global history bandwagon actually last the course? And will it, would it be appropriate to invest so much um, in what is global history, uh, the fashion of the moment, but which may not be the fashion of the moment in 10 or 20 or 30 years' time. So what I'm describing here, unlike Barry's dictionary, um, is a project as yet unrealized. Um, what it probably does have in common with Barry's story, as he's told it this afternoon, is that if it does move forward, I suspect it will be a very slow and difficult and perhaps painful period of gestation, uh, though not perhaps in quite the ways that his was. I don't think OUP's answer to these problems will be to say, we ask chaps. That doesn't seem to me to be quite the way to be thinking about going about this sort of thing looking forward. But I offer all this um, with the permission and consent and indeed enthusiastic endorsement of OUP um, as a sketch of something that might happen. Uh, whether it will happen is largely, I think, up to OUP, and it's not clear what they really want. I think they may want this but not want to commit the resources necessary to make it happen. But I would be very interested to get your reactions, um, and I'd be very interested to get Barry's since he actually has produced a dictionary of world biography, and almost no one else can lay claim to that remarkable distinction. Thank you. I'm, I'm sure that many of you will immediately have questions for David on that issue, but before um, and hold those questions, um, we're going to invite Barry and David to discuss their um, different um, outlines of, of how to approach this issue of world biography and, or global biography, and um, after a, a period of time, if I can rein them in, I'll invite questions from the floor. Look, if I can hop in first, about mm. the, the whole idea of the thousand global lives, uh, were you thinking of doing that in a piecemeal way so that you had, you know, perhaps 20 a year over 50 years or 50 a year over 20 years? Or how were you thinking of actually physically getting it out? Well, I I'm very happy to answer that, but I must repeat, this is not my idea. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, and I know no more about it than I've just said, really, yeah. since, uh, on the whole, the powers that be in Oxford are the ones driving this. But the, insofar as um, I am privy to what they have said, uh, beyond what I've just said, they've said to me, if I can put it that way. I think the scheme was that they wanted to unroll this on the basis of 200 biographies a year. Mm. Um, I have to say, I think the chances of accomplishing that are not high, but their thought was that this, these thousand biographies would be done within uh, five years. That was what they were after. Um, and uh, there is this kind of idea that somehow or other, though it's not quite clear how, uh, these three different elements to this scheme, the thousand biographies, and then doing 
regional biographies in areas of the world that don't have them, and then linking up uh, all the biographical dictionaries, ideally, or at least the Anglophone ones that do exist, there is a notion that somehow these things all fit together, but I'm, apart from putting them all on the same page as a proposal, I'm not entirely clear how they do fit together. Well, if I could ask you another question, which again might be somewhat unfair. I mean, we're thinking, say, um, just roughly think, just suppose that there were 200 in the first year. Are you thinking of a geographical distribution in the fact, in the sense of saying, well, if China's number one in the world in population, <coughs> then proportionally there should be more Chinese than any other single nationality? Well, uh, these seem to me to be precisely the sort of problems that uh, would have to be attended to if this scheme goes forward. Um, uh, it seems to me that clearly two of the things that would have to be traded off on these thousand lives would be, are those, is that laundry list of categories of, the, of these thousand lives, is that the right list? And I suspect that you could get as many answers, yes or no, to that as you took it to people to give the, to get an answer from. So that I think is a problem. And then to your second point, um, you know, let us suppose if we take the category of religion, well, you know, would parts of the world be miffed if there was no religious figure from their part yeah. of the world in the thousand lives that we had? Uh, I can see that parts of the world might be. Now, clearly, um, I suppose, you know, Confucius would presumably get in. So um, yeah. that would finesse China, um, in a way, uh, which was what you were kind of worried about. And I think, you know, Mohammed would get in, um, and <laughs> Jesus Christ would get in, I think. Um, I mean, this is the sort of ultimate party game of drawing up a shortlist, really. It's like, you know, you know, trying to appoint somebody to a job. You've got lots of applicants, as it were, and you can't accept them all. So I think that would obviously be a huge problem. You know, are, would those, are those categories right, the ones that I just uh, scampered through? And would there be some sort of notion that you have to distribute the personnel of each category geographically, so the coverage of the world is somehow even, or would you distribute it on the basis of population rather than geography? I don't envy anybody doing this job. I mean, they're trying to persuade me at OUP that maybe I should like to be the general editor of this thousand lives thing, but for reasons of which this is one, I think it will be a nightmare, <laughs> although a very interesting one. But again, if you do Confucius or, or Ma, are you really looking at having a China specialist from the West who say, yeah. well, it brings objectivity, or do you say, no, no, they're homegrown mm. products and you've got to have somebody from that part of the world? Well, I think that, uh, as I suggested, I think the whole issue of would this be um, seen as a, a real commitment, which I think is how OUP would see it, to thinking about a global dictionary, um, and that this would represent an expansion of OUP's horizons, both intellectually and in publishing terms, or would it be seen, and they are sensitive to this or aware of this, would it be seen as a further display of neo-colonialism in the sense that, as it were, the general editor with a committee to advise him or her would be telling the Chinese that they knew better how to write Chinese history than people in China mm. or Latin America or the Middle East or Africa? I think that that would again be an issue that would have to be looked into very carefully. Could I throw that question back at you then, Barry? I mean, obviously the, the issue of authorship was, was resolved, but, but the issue of selection, how did you, how did, did you approach those questions that you Opposed to David? Look, I, I'd hesitate to say it was partly instinct, but there, there was an element in, in, in that. I mean, 
clearly, uh, you know, what one would think, say about China, and I was, you know, I'd read very widely, or at least fairly widely about, about China, you'd think, well, clearly China's a place of extraordinary importance, historically over a long period. Uh, who are the 20, 30, 40, 50 figures who can't be left out? And then when you're talking about, about um, uh, relative length, you might say, well, you know, really, if you had to compare Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong, in the end, Mao Zedong left a larger, uh, you know, his monument, in a sense, has simply got to be bigger so that, <coughs> one, you don't leave, it, leave uh, Chiang Kai-shek out, you know, clearly you'd need to have a bit more because it's likely more people will be looking up Ma mm. than will be looking up Chiang. So you, you work out that, that uh, you work out that question of relativity like that. And again, that, but that was exactly where I would go to um, say um, uh, the H.W. Wilson Biographical Index, which I mentioned before, which in its own way was kind of a, a precursor of what you'd find on Google. Because you look at the number of references, and if you find that there are, there are links to three million citations for Mao, and there are 500,000 for Chiang, you think, well, that might be some kind of indication. I mean, no, sorry, that's what you'd find now. If you were looking at the Wilson thing and found you had four pages of, of, of citations and you only had half a column for Chiang, that gave you some idea about what the, you know, the, the, the relative importance. I was very intrigued by that. You set out here your criteria, or at least some of them, and, of course, mm. I'm thinking about this with regard to that OU peacekeeper. Certain categories were automatically included. <coughs> I'm quoting you, of course. Mm. Most popes, all British sovereigns and prime ministers, French and German kings and presidents, American presidents, prime ministers of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, India and South Africa. I wanted to avoid either including too many Australian entries or overreacting and having too few. So, I mean, all British sovereigns, I mean, th that seems to me very generous. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you and know, indeed, prime ministers, although, you know, they are coming and going at rather a rate at the moment. <laughs> so, well, but, 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 but again, it's not, it's not a huge number. It's not a huge number. And if you are thinking, or you might have been thinking at that stage, about... Um, the book being sold in the in in Britain yeah. and being perhaps a, a useful addition for students and so on, then it was prudent to put that to put that in. Mm. Well, and I think that is a well-made point, and it's one that, as it were, uh, again, with this OUP possible scheme, is an important one. I mean, who is the audience for these sort of things? Oh, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was very struck by the fact. Uh, I don't. I can't think of the name of the author, and I wish I'd brought it along. But a week or two ago, there was a there was quite an interesting review in the Times Literary Supplement about uh, new types of reference books, which are more and more specialised, mm -hmm. and that uh, and that there's a reference book now about uh, uh, a reference book about spoons in the Chinese a certain period of Chinese history. And the other one, which he drew particular attention to because he said he was interested in the readership 
and whether they would enjoy it was a book called The Dictionary of Rectal Ble Bleeding, uh, <laughs> which you would have thought was perhaps a restricted, a restricted audience with in yes. intense interest. Yes. Yes, perhaps Penguin, perhaps your, <laughs> perhaps somebody asked chaps and this is what they suggested, as it were. Exactly. Yes. Well, so who is the audience for the, um, for the... Uh, for this thing that may never happen. Yeah. Well, I think the, the presumption is that it will be a predominantly Anglophone audience, mm. which I take it, it was your presumption too. Oh, yes, yep. yeah, yeah. Mm, and so that surely must in, um, influence selection. I suppose an, an, another question which occurs to me, and I'm, we might throw to the audience in a moment if we can arrange some microphones, Christine, um, the, is on this issue of, of, of selection, mm. and um, certainly the Australian Dictionary of Biography relies on, an, on not just one committee but various committees to thrash out these issues. And um, um, I mean, I wonder how such a process of selection would be developed. With, um, yes, it, it seems to me that... Uh, that must be a uh, serious issue if this matter goes forward. I mean, we have a very elaborate committee structure uh, to determine, you know, who goes in and who goes out of the ODNB. But you know, what sort of global committee could you conceive of constituting, <laughs> where you would weigh the relative claims of, you know, Jesus Christ and Muhammad? Well, I suppose they both get in, as we've already established. But <laughs> I mean, it, it, it. I mean, I suppose it could be done, um, uh, but it's not quite clear what the mechanism would be to do that. I mean, I said yesterday when we were talking about biographies in a more explicitly national context that, you know, a lot of it is in the end fudging. You know, you invent various criteria, but in the end, because it's about people who are complicated and history which is a mess, none of these rigid criteria in the end absolutely hold up. And I suppose a global dictionary of national biography would, as it were, inflate the sense of fudge to an even greater level. <laughs> I don't see how else one could do it, really. Sure. Um, well, I think it's probably a good time to throw the um, conversation open to um, the wider audience. I'm sure there are some people with questions. Anyone? Up the back here. Just wait for a microphone. Christine's on her way. In, in the, oh my, my name is John. Um, in the case of both projects, would it keep things simple if you concentrated on uh, you don't include the living? I know that means a, a significant change for you, Barry, because you've certainly got the living in there. Yeah. And I'd be interested in knowing what proportion. But given that the, uh, the, the, the project is going to continue to grow and you yourself desire the, the, the sort of end product that it's most useful to be in a manageable volume, do you think it would be better in both cases, and it applies with you too, David, in terms of you, you, don't, you don't sort of consider the living as part of your project? Look, it, I, I'm, I suppose I'm immodest enough to think of the book as helping to try and assist people, particularly young people, to make sense of the world. I mean, a lot of them, of course, will rely on digital information, and I'll go to Wikipedia, but... Some, some will not. Some would like to actually have a book that they can pick up and annotate and mark and so on. And the point is that um, I, it would be quite arbitrary, I, I, certainly if you take even a, a thing like, like um, uh, the list of Australian prime ministers, if you said, well, you can really only... Con you, 
it's only really been possible to consider Whitlam's role after 1990... No, no sorry, uh, after 2014. You know, uh, I, I think that if you... Because if you're trying to think of Whitlam's relationship, say, with, um, with, with, with other significant figures in Australia, uh, it doesn't make sense if he's, the, if he's a large gap who is not there. So I'm very much in favour of, of um, uh, including the living, recognising the risk that, of course, there will have to be there'll have to be amendments. I was going to say, one of the things that I, that made, um, was a serious mistake, I think, with Webster's biographical dictionary, I think contributed to demise, that after a while, they stopped and decided that it was only to be, it was in about the time that Ronald Reagan became president, that they stopped having the living. Um, and so the result is that if you wanted a quick fix on something reasonably contemporary, some exciting figure like Donald Rumsfeld, for example, you simply couldn't find it because uh, the whole um, exercise had stopped. It was frozen. You see, it was frozen about the time of Franklin Roosevelt. Well, John Maynard Keynes, apparently, whenever he met someone for the first time, uh, used to ask himself, will they get into the DNB? <laughs> uh, that was Keynes's question. Um, uh, Keynes, of course, was in no doubt that he would get into the DNB, which he duly did. Um, but, of course, many of those questions that Keynes posed, he wouldn't live long enough to know the answers to because the, the, o the DNB and then the ODNB has always um, only dealt with people who've already yeah. died. As yeah. some of you know, when, when um, o OUP tried to persuade me to become the general editor, um, somebody who came from marketing, who, for reasons that will become obvious, is now applying his talents in a department more suited to his talents, he was trying to persuade me that this was a job I ought to take on. And he said, of course, David, the great thing if you become general editor of the ODNB is when you die, you're guaranteed your own entry. <laughs> I was not wholly encouraged by this. And that's, he's not in marketing anymore. Um, but it seems to me that um, that's the way the ODNB has always operated. And um, I think that it would certainly be the case that if this um, global dictionary ever takes off, I think that that would also be the way it would operate. I think the notion of saying, well, of the thousand people who we think are yeah. most significant in human history, there are one or two alive now to whom we will give that accolade as well, I think would be particularly uh, difficult. So I think we would, not, um, we would not do that. Any more questions? Down the front here. Um, I'm just wondering whether David might be able to... Um, redirect Oxford into producing a companion to world biography. Um, that could have all the national dictionaries of biography in it as articles, and it could also have um, both, um, <coughs> both uh, our speakers today <laughs> in it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would want to speak for that, to that, but mm. um, I think that, as I say, this is a scheme these uh, three layers of uh, global engagement uh, in a biographical mode that OUP is contemplating are still at very, very early stages of development, and they may not develop any further, um, or they may develop in different ways. So I think it's all at the moment at a very early stage, and as I say, it may, it may get no further, but that would certainly be something else to think about. I must say I'm not in any great hurry to get into the ADB. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I suppose, I mean, a, a question that occurs to me, obviously, the, 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 I think it was the second idea of yours, David, the, the sort of um, a way of trying to... Um, no, sorry, the third idea mm. of, 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 if you like, um, leveraging the, the existing national mm. dictionaries into something more global. Yeah. There, are, there, are some certain, there are certain technical problems there, yeah. IT problems, but also the fact that some are behind a paywall and yeah. some are not. Yeah. Um, I mean, is there, something more, is there something more fundamentally, though, about the nature of a national biography... What, what you know, we asked the question, well, Philip Carter in absentia asked the question yesterday, what is a dictionary of national biography for? Um, and is that compatible, um, if there isn't a co coherent answer to that, is that compatible to the idea of a dictionary of world biography or global biography? Well, I suppose one answer to that question is that it just seems a good idea uh, in the IT world that we now inhabit to see whether linking the dictionaries that already exist is, as it were, possible, that that would be a good thing to do of itself um, if the appropriate uh, technological and uh, financial problems could be overcome, that that might be just a good thing to do, mm. um, which maybe it would. I think there is a case for that. And maybe of these three layers, it's actually the one that's the most likely to happen. Um, but clearly, the notion that linking all existing dictionaries of national biography somehow of itself therefore gives you a dictionary of global biography mm. is, I suppose, um, not um, a sensible thing to say. Uh, and I suppose, therefore, the reason that OUP are thinking of the first stage, the, the thousand lives, is that the, the, the idea is that, in the first place, that will give you a global coverage in the way that if you linked all the existing dictionaries of national biography, you still wouldn't get, because there are parts of the world that are just not covered. But also that the idea of commissioning a global life of, uh, I don't know, Shakespeare uh, or J.S. Bach, who mm. didn't get out much either, uh, as it were, what would a global life of such a person, this is one of your composers beginning mm. with B, you know, what would a global life within the compass of two to 5,000 words of J.S. Bach look like? Yeah. Um, you know, what's the point of that? Well, I mean, maybe the answer is there is no point to it, but maybe the answer is that would be an interesting thing to try. Yeah. You could make the linkage. You see J.S. Bach, Albert Schwarzer, and yep. Gabon. Yep, absolutely. Yep. Uh, yep. Uh, and another, another um, thing you might say about J.S. Bach is that before uh, Mendelssohn, I think it was, um, would J.S. Bach have made it into, <laughs> into sure. any such dictionary? I think yeah. you make the point in your own history. Yeah. Oh, no, that's, so, that's right. So any dictionary is going to be a reflection, any dictionary of biography is going to be a reflection of um, what is currently seen to be significant in I that th nation. I think so, and also I think any such dictionary of the one that I've been sketching out in very, very... Um, crude terms, a lot of it would be about the afterlife, I think. Mm. I mean, as it were, oh as yeah. with Bach, I mean, you know, there'd probably have to be an entry on the Virgin Mary, but most of that would be, as it were, what's happened to her since she died, mm. when she yeah. has been getting out quite a lot, um, <laughs> as it were. So I think it, uh, that would be another way in which these global lives might be different from conventional national lives in national dictionaries, that it would be quite a lot about, as it were, posthumous reputation, posthumous resonance. Now, some of that is true of some of the entries, certainly in the DNB, about uh, Shakespeare, for instance, but I think uh, the balance would be adjusted. And so I think the idea of saying to someone, you know, write me a global life of Shakespeare in 5,000 words, I think that would be quite interesting. Mm -hmm. And it would produce a different sort of life yeah. from the one that's in the ODNB and might be worth a go. Okay. Just on the question of Bach, because it just occurred to me, you see, that there are other ways of looking at it. 
you know that the first composer, first European composer that we know to have been performed here after the European settlement or conquest or whatever in 1788 was C.P.E. Bach. Hmm. We know that, you see. And it may be that there would have been a reference prior to Mendelssohn to say C.P.E. Bach was the son of J.S. Bach, hmm. an old-fashioned kind of composer <laughs> who sort of dropped off the scene. Hmm. But C.P.E. Bach was very hot in 1788. Yeah, so I think that the Australian, an Australian dictionary of biography in 1788 would have been an interesting volume, but, um, yeah. but yeah, CPE Bach might have made it in. Um, have we got any other questions it's from the floor? pure white anyway. <laughs> Alistair. Hi. Um, I just wonder about the point of a global biography in English, because mm -hmm. in a certain sense the question uh, arises as to whether this should not also be in Chinese mm. and in German and in uh, countless other languages. Yeah. Uh, you would write a very different life of J.S. Bach, although there are some very good English biographies of Bach, but you would have some very different lives of Bach in German, for example, from a life in English. That The context is different, the, the thinking about uh, his place is different and so on and so forth. So my question is, Well, it is a good question. Um, as I understand it, the thought at the moment is that in the first instance it would only be available in English. Um, and the argument is that's a fairly global language, though whether it's as really as a global a language as Chinese or Spanish, if you add up the number of people who speak it, I mean, I just don't know. Um, but obviously that carries with it um, risks such as the fact that it would therefore seem to be a sort of Western world view of the rest of the world, uh, which it obviously would be. Um, and it would carry with it the risk that large parts of the world that OUP might want to reach wouldn't be reached by that means. I suppose against that, again, we come back to the issue of resources, that producing it in a variety of languages um, would probably make it even more prohibitively expensive as an enterprise than it's going to be anyway if it ever happens. But um, I do see that that is an issue. Of course, the other argument in favour of it is actually it's unrealistic to expect a global market, so you might as well stay with the market you've got, which, after all, does encompass a fairly large part of the globe anyway. Um, we've got a question up there. Back here, and Susan next. If, if asking the chaps is not acceptable, is it possible now to ask the citizenry? And I'm just thinking here, it's a bit flippant, but it's a, sort of a case of Twitter meets the European Song Contest. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's certainly possible to imagine that one way to proceed with this would be to have consultations in different parts of the world um, uh, uh, with not just academics, but, you know, th that as it were... Uh, you would want to poll the population as to who they wanted in. Um, uh, on the basis of um, last week, I can't pretend to be in favour of referendums <laughs> myself, um, but, um, I mean, for instance, I sit on the committee now in, in uh, London which does the designs of banknotes. 
Um, this used to be just decided by the governor. Um, you know, he just decided who he'd put on and who he'd take off and when, and there was some row uh, at the end of the governorship of Mervyn King, and so a committee was set up. Um, and it, we agreed the category, which was going to be the visual arts, um, and then, in fact, it, it all went up on the Bank of England website and people were invited, you know, the public was invited to nominate um, candidates. And I think 400 different names were suggested. Um, and in the end, we had to whittle it down to three. And, you know, we had this absurd conversation. Well, I think Turner's probably a better painter than Holbein, but I'm not absolutely sure. He's sort of beta plus query alpha, but he's gamma minus. And then there's this guy, Constable, but we really don't think he's quite made the grade, and these conversations are slightly preposterous, um, <laughs> indeed hugely preposterous, since it's people of limited talent presuming to, you know, to rank people of super talent, and it's kind of absurd, although hugely enjoyable, actually. Um, <laughs> uh, um, so, I mean, there are precedents for, as it were, polling the public about suggested names, and I suppose one could imagine doing that, but, you know, the thing would then become so elaborate and so cumbersome it's hard to see that it would actually work. Although I do take the point that, you know, the Chinese might wish to say, excuse me, dear OUP, you were presuming to have a variety of figures from our country who were deemed to be of global significance. You know, shouldn't we have some say in the selection? That mm. would not seem to be, in, to be an unreasonable view, but whether it can be got to work, I don't know. <laughs> Susan? Uh, I wanted to raise again uh, the, the question of diversity. Mm. And I see the way ahead for this being rather fraught, mm. especially with what seems like a fairly small number, I mean, a thousand entries as an editor. I know that mm. is a lot. But if you think about distributing a thousand entries mm. over all time, over the whole world, you are going to end up with 95% white men. Mm. And uh, yeah. do you really want, does OUP really want to go mm. forward with a project with optics like that? Mm. And I think one, I actually have read the proposal mm. that you were you're speaking from, and I think one of the things I had hoped for was perhaps a bigger sample so that there would be more room to put in a range of people. But I am, as you describe it, and just thinking about all the people who automatically will get in, I, it, there's not going to be much room left for anything representing diversity mm. in terms of gender and so many other ways. Mm. And obviously this has come up, but can you speak more to that? Well, uh, I mean, I wholly agree with what you've just said. And at the one meeting, um, at which these, these proposals were um, discussed by a range of Oxford historians, and there was considerable diversity among them, I ought to say, and that was deliberate on our part. One of the points that was repeatedly made, and indeed it's very much my view as well, is exactly the point that you've just made, that a thousand lives, 90% of them would be white men, um, and that that's just not acceptable. Um, in 2016, and it's absolutely even more not acceptable in what purports to be a dictionary of global biography. And I think that would be a very big problem. Uh, I mean, I am not, you know, I hold no brief for this enterprise. I'm merely describing mm -hmm. what OUP are thinking mm -hmm. about. Um, so, I mean, I don't feel any obligation to defend um, the proposal as it currently exists. I mean, I think, you know, the idea of a 
a history of the world in a thousand lives is quite an attractive one, if you put it like that. I think the idea of doing regional or national dictionaries of biography in parts of the world that don't have them is a good idea. I think the notion of linking up the dictionaries that do exist to a greater extent than at the moment has been possible is also a good idea. But I think that there are, as I tried to suggest in my closing remarks, I think with, with each of them, there are very serious difficulties and problems. Um, and I think that the point you make about the thousand lives is a classic example of that. Carolyn. Oh, yeah, I confess to having some problem about working out who your audience for this book is, but it's occurred to me that um, if you're only going to have a thousand lives, uh, I think the sort of Gavin McCarthy's filling in a gap. I mean, I can't imagine why this, if, I mean, if it's not just a fashionable response, I don't see why it needs the Virgin Mary or Jesus Christ. I mean, it seems to me that if it if would have more value and certainly more diversity if it actually focused on a global, a global biography of the sorts of people that ordinary we might not know about. I mean, I actually do like the idea of how they've had influence globally, but it seems to me that if all you're going to do is fill it up with people for whom there are possibly half a library shelf of existing mm. biographies, I'm not really not sure what the mm. point is. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I shall um, pass these comments <laughs> on. <laughs> Barry, do you have um, in your dictionary any people who you might describe as ordinary? Or is it it was um, a global or was influence either na locally, nationally, or globally essential to, to selection? I, I mean, I did put, I think, a very heavy emphasis on 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 the linkages, and you see, but it's and you see, it's been reinforced by later experiences. I mean, the point is that, in a sense, uh, two things about the the dictionary. First of all. Uh, it doesn't really claim to be objective. I mean, I, I try to keep some of my biases uh, uh, concealed. I mean, and, and I think it's probably fair to say I don't give an, un, an unqualified praise to everybody on the left and, and, and I'm not universally dismissive of everyone on the right. <laughs> I tend to be harsher on people who are authoritarian as opposed to those who aren't authoritarian. But on the whole... Um, you know, there, there's a kind of a, a benign, uh, a, a benign subjectivism uh, going through <laughs> it all, but I can see that as I've been doing um, new experiences. For example, last year my wife and I spent a bit of time in Iran, and I hadn't been anywhere in Iran except Tehran before, but we we spent some time there. So the result is, if you compare this edition with previous editions you'll see that there's a, an accretion and a correction in, and, and a greater emphasis on some of the great um, uh, Persian writers, like Ferdowsi, for example, and Hafiz and Saadi and so on. And if I, hadn't been, if I hadn't been to Iran last year, they would have stayed as they were. But, of course, when you're there, you think, ah, right, now I see there's a connection between this and this. And similarly, there's no doubt that in the period that I was representing Australia at UNESCO, which is, you, you didn't mention in the intro, but <laughs> when I was spending 
But when I was spending years in, in, in Paris, it, I became preoccupied, not to become, a, uh, say, obsessed, with certain aspects of French history, so that I would say that, and indeed, French geography and uh, French architecture and so on. And that's all reflected in the book. You could see, you could practice, if you, if you had the energy and you looked at previous editions and you compared the length of entries, you could say, well, he's obviously been spending a lot of time in France or, or in Sicily or in, in Spain and so on. So that as I, and indeed with the World Heritage stuff that I was doing, it meant that I was very conscious, why is this new heritage site being put up in Africa? Why is it so important? Well, and then you start to read the history and say, right, that's obviously where more names have got to go in. Or those names have got to be tweaked in a way so that you look at it in a different point of view. Exactly. So that I can see that that... that um, uh, and I remember back in... Um, in, seven, in uh, 1989, I mean, I was a minister there, but in 1989 was the bicentenary of the French Revolution. And there was a period when I became, I drove my staff mad, but I became obsessed with the French Revolution and its history, so that I would have done a lot of rewriting about French revolutionary figures. So back to Susan's question, what percentage of entries in your dictionary are women? About... 20-something percent, but more, more than the percentage in most other reference books. Mm. Mm. And why do you think that is? Oh, well, uh, because as Malcolm Turnbull said, this is a joke, uh, <laughs> as Malcolm Turnbull said, women hold up half the sky. <laughs> Since then, he's been called Chairman Malcolm. Right. <laughs> Over here. Um, I just... Uh, I two points I want to make quickly. The first one's flippant and the second one's serious. The, the flippant one is um, uh, yesterday Professor Nolan was kind enough to quote some of my statistics um, about the percentage of parliamentarians or judges who have entries in the ADB. Uh, one, of the, one of the other percentages I calculated was the um, delegates to the official uh, uh, federation conventions in the 1890s and members of the Federal Council of Australasia now, that, those two groups together, there's about 100 people uh, combined. There's a, a high degree of overlap between them. Yep. The ADB has entries for all of them bar one. And in relation to that, I was going to suggest to Sir David that if, in light of the religious sensitivities you were mentioning a couple of times in a highly selective group, you might want to check and go through once you've got your numbers that you only have, if you only have 11 apostles might want to add the last one in. <laughs> uh, the serious point was that um, um, I don't know whether you, well, whether OUP might have looked at the sorts of models that um, large-scale bibliographers have, have adopted in trying to get a sort of a wider coverage than, than was hitherto been, been done. And I'm thinking here, for instance, the work by the University of St Andrews who have, um, uh, uh, you know, more or less comprehensive bibliographies of various European countries, uh, 16th, 17th century. And, um, and, and, and I guess they weren't trying to reinvent the whole thing by trying to do um, recover, if you like, the English-speaking world, which already had a fair amount of coverage, but instead trying to fill in some of the, the, the bigger gaps, if only as an interim measure towards perhaps something further in the future, 
and then um, those works were then um, linked electronically with the existing um, corpora to, to produce a virtual um, single coverage. Who, incidentally, who, who was the missing parliamentarian? Um, I, I can't remember his name, but he was a Tasmanian. <laughs> <laughs> um, Turlow. Hi there. Um, Turlow Reardon from the Dictionary of Irish Biography. What I'm fascinated about within this discussion, and I'm sure it's not unique, is that we're going to, uh, the idea of global biography is, is sort of ending the boundaries and the sexual in sectional interests that divide us into nations and, mm. and, and dictionaries is quite obvious. And at what point then do you move away from any level of kind of objective granularity? Are you going to you know, consult San Marino and Liechtenstein mm. and, 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 and that kind of up and down national thing? But the sideways thing, I mean, I'm fascinated by the, the increasing kind of growth of specialist reference works. And your reference, Barry, to the Dictionary of Anal Bleeding is of great interest to me because I, I ended up having my colon removed recently, so I'm dying to read this dictionary and why it exists. But <laughs> I'd say that as an elite, educated, white, middle-class male with a beard working in reference works. I mean, there's always a market out there, and the wonderful thing about the web is it brings minor or minority or lesser or underrepresented mm. groups together like nothing else before. So if this is to be done, could it be done in an, in an internet way? And I don't mean in terms of traditional publishing or a publishing house, but Wikipedia has kind of done what's being talked about here. Mm. In a, in, a really, in a really good way with loads of flaws from a scholarly perspective, but I was telling someone earlier I make a point of donating to Wikipedia because I use it for my personal interests. I try not to use it for my professional interests. But there's a range of incredibly good content next to awful content. But oh can yeah. we all mm. stand aside and say that our own dictionaries don't have s those problems as well? Um, and obviously the OUP venture is really interesting. Is it the last gasp of Anglophone academic mm. publishing? Um, should I say that because I'm published by Cambridge, mm. who are smaller and older? You know, uh, we could have another week on this, and it's fascinating. But I think the internet has done a lot of these things, and we're not always fully aware of them through things like ORCID and VIAF and drawing bibliography and biographical work together. And the way to do it could be non-OUP, mm. you know, through a through a c collaborative internet effort. You know. Um, yes, I mean, I think that's right. These seem to me to be some of the serious issues which I don't think OUP or whoever takes the decisions at OUP have yet thought through. I mean, one of the issues which came up when some of these ideas were kicked around or thrown out by hi historians when we had this discussion in Oxford was that, I mean, one OUP idea was to call this a dictionary of transnational biography, but of course it was pointed out that if you're doing all of human history, then most of human history has not been organized around nations. So this is actually a totally ridiculous way to set it up. And that one may be all therefore, as you also say, not to think about a kind of balancing off the numbers in terms of geographical distribution or national distribution, and that that would simply be a, a hopeless way to do it. Um, and these do seem to me to be really rather significant issues that I don't think have been thought through. I was very interested to notice in that um, article I referred to before in the, in the TLS about reference books, uh, at the estimate, I don't know whether it comes from Wikipedia, as to the total number of, uh, of people who are, who are authors mm. of the... Do you, do you recall the number? No, I don't. I recall 27 the million. Yeah, yeah. 27 million is the number they quoted. W on Wikipedia. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Not all on one day. No, <laughs> that's right. Um, more questions? Brian, you had one? Yeah, Brian Dinborn from the Australian Dictionary of Biography. Uh, this is only just a slightly facetious question. Uh, it has uh, overtones up until the uh, reality. Um, would a solution 
not be to have a dictionary of the hoi polloi, which would balance the other dictionaries that you're more familiar with. Well, um, uh, that might meet some criteria of diversity, I suppose, though I don't think it's a title which would encourage the people who, if they were alive, were in it to want to buy it. <laughs> um, so I think marketing would have to be involved in that. Um, but, I mean, it's rather interesting, back, in a sense, to uh, a quotation from Keith Thomas that several people used yesterday and perhaps this morning, uh, where Keith's lecture ends, where, where he says that the, the there is now the possibility for a huge database of national history of a kind that has not existed before. Um, well, that may be true, but um, when one actually tries to work out how to do it, I think at the moment it's, it isn't yet clear how that would happen. And I think that to, as it were, upscale from that to some kind of global database would be, I mean, it may well be that that is coming, um, but we're not there yet. I, I would have thought that a lot of the work in the social sciences really deals with the way in which people struggle with life, but it tends to be organised, you know, uh, as discrete blocks of people rather than simple, simple individuals. But, you know, you've had writers like, um, oh, Janet McCallman, for example, who've written a lot about the way in which people live. It's a remarkable book for those who... Uh, are from uh, not uh, not locals. Uh, that book that she wrote about the famous '69 tram in in Melbourne, that that goes from St Kilda up to Kew. Now that's a very interesting, wonderfully written book about the way in which people live. You know, the people who live on that. And I lived pretty close to that tram line at one stage of my turbulent life. So. I've got a vested interest, I suppose, but I think there is quite a lot of work being done. So certainly the Academy of Social Sciences is doing quite a lot of stuff in that area, but it tends not to come out in terms... I mean, this is perhaps unhappily the age of celebrity, so that people do tend to want to know about the kind of people whose names they see on television news or where there's perhaps a long obituary when they, when they die. Um, and, or really before they die, but, uh, but it, it suggests that, that there is a, a kind, I don't know whether the interest is legitimate, but it's real. And it's saleable, which is no doubt why biographies tend to be, in many cases, you know, biographies tend to sell more than, than uh, works of fiction. If you take a good example, or a very notable example in Australia, uh, David Marr's wonderful uh, biography of uh, Patrick White, for example, sold far more copies than anything that Patrick ever sold in his lifetime. Um, and I would think that probably, um, is it Patrick French, that scathing biography of V.S. Naipaul, mm -hmm. the authorised by Patrick, Mm, Patrick yeah, French, French yeah. uh, uh, is, is, a fan, is an extraordinary biography. And while I think, uh, and I, Paul's always been a pretty good seller, I think the, uh, the biography of him, which had profound insights, I think was a bestseller. Yeah. I mean, I think there's also a, one of the contradictions, there are doubtless many, at the heart of these OUP proposals, which several of the questions have touched on, I think, is... On the one side, these biographical dictionaries, as we heard from the two welcomes we got yesterday morning, 
are about well-written articles evoking the lives and describing the lives of particular individuals. But I think that what lies behind this selection or these, these, this three-tiered OUP scheme is a feeling on the part of the reference section of OUP, and it is a reference enterprise, that they've somehow got to engage with this world of big data, that they've sort of heard about big data. You know, they've been south of Didcot and they've encountered big data somewhere, and they <laughs> kind of feel they've got to engage with this. Um, but I think the difficulty is that engaging with big data is a very different enterprise from um, promoting the sort of biographies and the, the, the craft of biographical writing mm. that you've just been describing and that which we talked a bit about yesterday. And I don't think, I'm not yet clear that they have yet understood that reconciling those two things may not be possible. Yeah. Yet. Are there any more questions? We've got time for a couple more if anyone... On the other hand, we are nearing the end of a, of a long and um, stimulating two days. Um, I will, at this point, just take the opportunity to um, just, to, just to fill you in on the recent history of Barry's Dictionary. I mean, it, fi it wasn't 50 years from, from conception to first publication. It was, it was first published when, Barry? In the oh, it was the first, uh, uh, 1983. Mm. But the, for the last, since 2014, the, um, the dictionary in its latest form has been published by ANU Press. Um, and it's already in its third edition, because no, um, Barry keeps on tweaking it. Um, and uh, just this year, uh, a, a nice hardcover version with a, an attractive portrait on the front cover has, um, has been released. And it's uh, for sale in the, in the bookstore upstairs. At a discounted price. At a discounted price. And, uh, and, and Barry, of course, is a great collector of autographs, so it's only fair that he should be prepared to give something back. So if you'd like an autograph copy, I'm sure he would oblige. Although he does need to catch a plane back to Melbourne to watch the election count. Um, is that not correct? I was going to say, that just, just perhaps one thing. Yeah. The, uh, you mentioned the autograph collection. You see, in a sense, um, that was probably an, uh, quite a significant factor in the way in which the book was shaped. Now, I noticed a number of discrepancies, for example, in the biographies of uh, Stravinsky. So I wrote to Stravinsky and drew attention to these anomalies, and rather to my surprise, he responded. So I then did a draft um, uh, entry on his life, which he then corrected it, uh, in really very extensively and so on. Now, the point is he deleted a few lies and then added a few new ones. <laughs> and uh, so that it was... Uh, but in a way, uh, but you, you got, first of all, uh, a very interesting analysis from him mm. and you could see you, that you saw various aspects of it and that really sprang out of the collection. I've, I would think, and uh, so and similarly, in the, and the other thing I'd say was a major factor was the, uh, the 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 period that I spent at Trinity, where I was a, a sort of r rather unlikely visiting fellow commoner at Trinity College in Cambridge, and it meant that I had that extraordinary overlap with uh, with with scientists, and it would be perhaps pushing it too far to say that you know. That really describe it as friendship, but I certainly developed some kind of, uh, 
um, relationship with, with some very distinguished, uh, particularly scientists, and, and a couple of historians, like Owen Chadwick, for example. Mm. And, um, you know, and that too, and then you'd go back and think, hmm, let's rethink the way in which we look about, say, Max Peretz's contribution in the, uh, in the genetic revolution and so on. So mm. uh, these are all things that mm. it, it's been built up out of that personal experience to a large extent. Mm. And I think you've, you've, as you've described it, your dictionary is sort of a, a constantly evolving organic sort of mm. um, project, mm. um, whereas perhaps the, uh, the, um, pr as the OUP proposal is something that would perhaps need to be far more systematic with all the problems associated with that. Well, it hasn't evolved very far, mm. <laughs> um, and I think it may have gone backwards a bit in the light of the comments that have uh, <laughs> uh, uh, been made today. Um, uh, could I sort of say a, a very brief few final words? Absolutely. We're moving Absolutely. towards uh, closure. Well, yeah. I mean, I suppose what I partly wanted to say was how enormously much I've enjoyed being here and how terrific I think this conference has been, how much I've enjoyed sharing the podium, Barry, with you at this final session. And I suppose that the thoughts that I particularly want to just try to summarise are that it seems to me that one of the ways this gathering has been so good is that in the conversations both at formal sessions and informal sessions, I think a whole variety of problems have emerged that all of us feel we've got and that somehow it's helpful to know that other people have got them too, uh, if I can put it that way. I mean, it seems to me that we spent quite a lot of time uh, discussing things like issues of revision. We talked a lot about the cultural journeys of these dictionaries from being just about dead white men to being about a much more representative, um, uh, as it were, expression of the complexities of the nations uh, that they're related to. Um, we've talked quite a bit about these issues of globalization and the problems and possibilities of that. And I mean, I found those conversations extremely helpful. And um, it's reassuring to know that other people are fretting about these problems as much as people in OUP are. Though, on, and when I report back this last session, they'll be fretting even more about <laughs> some of the problems than they were. And I suppose my final thought was that since uh, many people had spoken about the previous conference, which occurred in 1995, I don't think we should leave it another 21 years before we have another gathering like this. Mm. And that actually is the last thing that I want to say, because I think it's been terrifically interesting enormously enjoyable and it's raised or brought to the surface a whole set of issues which I think are very current and which moving forward we're going to keep to need to stay in touch with mm. about and I think the more we can be in touch in person as well as by email the better. Mm. And Barry do you have any final comments or election predictions? <laughs> well I just the, the, the last stage, of course, about the, the dictionary of uh, world biography is that it was a project really that was taken up in its latest incarnation, was really taken up very much by the biographical unit with responsibility for the ADB. And, uh, and uh, Melanie, Melanie Nolan, was very, very important. And then the person that I worked with most of all in the project was... Uh, Christine Fernan, and Christine has, Christine has been absolutely terrific and very knowledgeable and uh, tactful and <laughs> all, those, uh, all those super virtues. And uh, so I'm very grateful to, uh, to what ANU has done and the experience with uh, ANU Press has been interesting and uh, <laughs> stimulating. And now, as I say, the, we've got the, the hardcover out there. This has been a, not a bad year for publication for me. The, the, that and the... Uh, 
my book, uh, The Shock of Recognition, which mm. is really about, essentially, about music. Which is also literature. on sale upstairs, uh, I uh, Also, the discounted price, I note, <laughs> with, some, with some anxiety. Um, <laughs> or any of my books on sale. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, <laughs> but the... the um, uh, as, as to the... Uh, I'd have to say, with, as to the election, I... Despite my, you know, long, long-term political uh, uh, commitment and all the period I spent as the national president of the party, uh, I've been concerned that at the problem, and it's partly your problem, not just the politicians, we have an educated elite. In Australia, at the moment, there are about four and a half million graduates. The impression that I have is that they're influence as a pressure group is insignificant. It's extraordinary. You can see that the promoters of junk food, the promoters of gambling, the promoters of a lot of things that we have to regard as very uh, uh, contrary to the national interest uh, are far more significant. And you, it, it's extraordinary when you reflect that the universities and indeed institutions like CSIRO are constantly under retreat because we say, well, budget repair is what the election is about and the universities and so on simply represent, simply represent a cost. And I think the universities have been very feeble and indeed, as I say, professionals generally, unless they're talking about very immediate vested interest. They're not bad there, but they're not good in promoting the general interest. And while you could have to say, you'd have to say that the quality of debate in this election is better than it was in 2013, I think 2013 was the absolute nadir, uh, it's not much of an improvement. And you can see that what's really happened, the problem with the, the two major parties, the duopoly, uh, the two major parties really represent, uh, represent the, they're the equivalent of Coles and Woolworths. There's a <laughs> very heavy level of overlap between them. And what they're horrified is that Aldi or IGA might get a share of the market. <laughs> and they think that's intolerable. <laughs> and I, in some ways, I must say, I'd regard the hung parliament as, uh, as quite, um, in some ways, quite exhilarating. After all, it was a hung parliament back in 1940, that parliament, which ultimately produced the government of John Curtin. That didn't come out of the Labour majority, it came out of a hung parliament. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you know, even if you look back in that period between 2010-2013, look at the number of pieces of legislation that actually got through. The implication is, if you've got a hung parliament, nothing happens. It's not true you sometimes get through issues which are controversial, which you'd never get the other way around. Well, I think that's perhaps not so much a prediction as a hope on Barry's part. Um, uh, I'd like to say two thank yous. The first one, um, I had very little to do with the organisation, in fact, nothing to do with the organisation of this conference, despite being in the NCB. So I wanted, uh, on behalf of everyone, to thank the organisers of the conference, um, Melanie, Christine, Karen, um, Malcolm, various others for the wonderful work they did to sort of um, follow on from David's comments. Yeah.
And finally, um, can you join me in thinking, th thanking our two speakers um, for this final session, Barry and David. Thank you.